turn with me to Acts 20, turn with me to Acts 24. We continue our reading through the Acts of the Apostles. You may recall that we are going through the several chapters where Paul has been arrested and remains a prisoner. This all began at the end of chapter 21, and it will continue through the end of the book. Paul will be a prisoner, but moved to several locations. In chapter 24 today, Paul is in prison at Caesarea, where he will remain in prison for two years. Let us pray and then hear the word. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, we praise you that we are a people who are still hearing the word of God. We thank you that we are still, by your spirit, coming to hear it, hear it preached by your servant, whom you have raised up to do so. Father, with all this hope, we pray in hope that you would bless the preaching of your word today. Bless it to our sons, bless it to our daughters, bless it to our husbands, our wives, and all who are gathered, brothers and sisters in this room. We pray that we would recognize herein the authority of the living God, and that we, O oh Father, would be indeed reformed according to the word, that we would put away those things that are passing away, and that we would indeed put on the new man, and that we would come away glorying afresh in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Acts 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can, neither can they prove to you that they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. 
While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Beloved, the scripture says in Proverbs 26, 28, that a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs 29, 5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Flattery is a trick of the mouth. Flattery is speech. It is excessive complimenting of another person to advance your own interest. But God says flattery works ruin and flattery is a snare. Why is flattery so very dangerous to the one who is flattered? Jeremy Collier, a theologian from England who died in 1726, gives a wise explanation. Flattery leaves a very dangerous impression. It swells a man's imagination, entertains his vanity, and drives him to a doting upon his own person. And this, of course, is why some men love to be flattered. Even preachers, I'm afraid to say. But little do they know the damage that is coming upon them. In many cases, flattery comes from an inferior to a superior. It comes from a man of low rank to a man of high rank. The low man wants the high man to think well of him. Flattery is a shortcut for that. It's a cheap replacement for doing well in our work day after day. The hope of flattery is that the high man will remember how good the low man made the high man feel about himself especially if the flattery was in public. For many men, feeling good about themselves is the most important thing in life. Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, was that kind of man. He was a man of high rank who enjoyed being flattered. By 52 AD, 
Felix had been appointed to the same position once held by Pontius Pilate some 25 years earlier. Felix is the Roman official now presiding over Paul's criminal case at Caesarea. Felix is one of the elite. He holds the power of life and death. He can influence politics and policies. He controls wealth. He controls the news. He controls the narrative. Now, a lot of Jews hated Felix. You'll learn more why in a moment. Many Jews, though, flattered Felix. But there was one Jew who did neither. There was one Jew who came into Felix's life for two years who neither hated him nor flattered him. And that Jew was the prisoner, Paul, our Lord's apostle. And because Paul neither hated nor flattered, he was free to sincerely preach the gospel to an elite man with courage and integrity. You see, something had happened to Paul. By the Holy Spirit, Paul's heart had been set free from the old ways men regarded each other. Christ's redeeming work on the cross for sinners had been applied to Paul by the Spirit. He now regarded Christ crucified as a man's highest good, as his own highest good. He now saw himself differently. He now saw all other men differently. He no longer hated men for their ethnicity, their race, and he no longer flattered men for their rank. The cross leveled everyone, and Paul himself was leveled. He could no longer think of men the way he used to. Here's how he says it himself in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul's heart has been consumed and is now controlled by the ministry of reconciliation. He wants to win as many people as he can to Christ. As a recipient of God's redeeming love in Christ— Paul has become a servant of that redeeming love. That's always how it works. You want to see who are the servants of this redeeming love? They are always the recipients of it. Therefore, he will not, Paul will not flatter Felix with a bribe or even with words. That would only teach Felix that Paul's safety in this life is the most important thing to Paul. He wants Felix to know being reconciled to God in Christ is the most important thing. He wants to make a free offer of the gospel to Felix. He doesn't want Felix to remain in the dark. He doesn't want Felix to remain dead in sin. He doesn't want Felix to remain under God's wrath. Paul wants Felix reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Now, let me ask you, before we go on. 
are there any groups of people on this earth who you think should be kept in the dark about God's ministry of reconciliation? Are there any groups you don't want forgiven of their sins by faith in Christ? Are there any groups you want kept out of our churches, no matter how sincere their repentance from sin and their faith in Christ is? If there is any group of people out there you want to keep away from Christ, this race or that race, the elite or the down and outer, the religious or the godless, if there's any group you would not share the gospel with, it is because the gospel is not your greatest treasure. Your skin color is. Or your place in society is. Your greatest treasure, if this is you, is in the flesh, not in the new creation. You must, if this is you, you must not be reading your Bible. And if you are reading your Bible, you don't believe it. You are probably not even a Christian. If you think there are some kinds of people you would not want to offer salvation in Jesus Christ, you are ruled by the flesh and not by the Spirit. Paul offers Felix eternal life. Learn from this, beloved. Now, before we see Paul's presentation of the gospel to Felix, which comes in verse 23 and following, let's look at a few things from the trial, because it will help us reach a peak of wonder (laughs) that Paul offers this man eternal life. And what we note first is how men of the flesh quickly employ lies and flattery when they stand before the elite. Our text says Ananias the high priest and some elders from Jerusalem have hired a professional orator named Tertullus. This is clearly the name of a Roman. The Jewish leaders have hired a mercenary tongue, as Matthew Henry put it. They have hired a lawyer who will defend an unjust cause if the money is right. Tertullus knows Roman law, and he knows his way around a Roman courtroom, but he is a pathetic man. You do not want to grow up to be Tertullus. He's a pathetic man who will say anything if you pay him the right amount of money. And what does Tertullus say to Felix? It's all flattery, and it's all falsehood. He praises Felix for being such a great leader of the nation Israel. Through you, we enjoy much peace, he says, speaking as if he himself were a Jew. By your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Beloved, this is nauseating flattery. Because it was well known among the Jews, especially those in the room, Ananias and the elders, well known that Felix 
was a cruel, vindictive oppressor of the Jewish people in his eight-year reign. At the time of this trial, Felix had been procurator for six years. The historian Josephus tells us Felix had already secretly killed Jonathan, the high priest, by using hired assassins. They snuck daggers under their cloaks and approached Jonathan in a temple court and took his life and disappeared in the crowd, never found. Felix had also ordered assassins to kill other troublesome Jews he didn't like and to do it on the streets of Jerusalem and in the temple. Felix also looked the other way when his own soldiers plundered the homes of Jews in Caesarea. And it was well known by all that Felix had stolen Drusilla away from her first husband. Having seen Drusilla one day while he was traveling, he was overwhelmed by her beauty, told himself he had fallen madly in love with her, hired a professional charmer to go to her and persuade her to leave her husband and marry Felix, and she did, becoming his third wife. So Tertullus, on behalf of his clients, praises a bad man as if he were the best of men, which means the Jews, in their heart of hearts, hate Felix, unlike Paul. They hate Felix. Their flattery encourages him to regard his evil behavior as good. When you do that to a man, you hate his guts, no matter what you say. To encourage a bad man that his evil is actually good by flattery is a peak level of hatred. They are hardening Felix in his ways through flattery. Matthew Henry said, by flattering princes and what they do wrong, we draw them along to do even worse. Brothers and sisters, do not become flatterers of evil. Do not become flatterers of evil men. If you cannot truthfully say something good about someone or an organization or a magistrate, then saying nothing at all is far better. But even better than that is graciously telling others, telling these magistrates, telling these persons, telling these organizations, is graciously telling them their faults. That is even better than remaining silent, especially if they are people of high rank. What got John the Baptist thrown in prison? Mark 6.18 tells us, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That is why John was arrested. John was no slave to flattery. Yes, it got him executed, but he was still the best friend Herod could have had, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27, 6. Beloved, as Christians, watch out. Watch out how you flatter magistrates who are not good men. Now, after his flattery, Tertullus moves on to his falsehoods. 
he accuses Paul of three specific things, a political crime, a religious crime, and a crime of desecration. The political crime is stirring up riots throughout the world. The religious crime is being ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, which is actually a derogatory expression for the Christians. And the crime of desecration is the original lie from chapter 21, claiming Paul brought Trophimus, the Ephesian, a Gentile, into the temple courts. That was a lie that was stirred up by some Jews from Asia. Now, when it's Paul's turn to speak in verse 10, he quickly responds to each of these false accusations. But notice first how very different Paul's opening remarks to Felix are. Now, Paul uses the same courtroom technique that Tertullus does, and there's a name for it, captatio benevolentiae. Captatio benevolentiae. It's, it's called fishing for goodwill. It's a common rhetorical strategy in a Roman court to try to get the judge somewhat on your side. But Paul does it, he definitely does it, but without any flattery. In verse 10, he has none of that flattery we heard from Tertullus. He simply comments on the fact, the fact that Felix has the experience of years to be judge over these matters. Paul does not get competitive here in the arena of flattery. He does not worry about being at a disadvantage for not having buttered up the judge. By faith, Paul knows he is in the Lord's hands. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 118, 6 through 9. Oh, may the Lord put you and I in more places where we have to choose to set ourselves in the hands of the Lord and not in the hands of men. That is a good test for our soul. And it is a great cause of enjoyment in God. How then does Paul refute the three criminal charges against him? Well, for the political crime of stirring up riots, Paul says to Felix, you can easily investigate the past 12 days and learn by your investigation that I did not stir up any person or any crowd anywhere not in the temple, not in the synagogues, not in the city. It's only been 12 days, Felix. You can go check it out. For the religious crime of being a ringleader of a sect, Paul says, I and all the people of the way, the followers of Jesus, we worship the same God as our Jewish fathers did, and we believe the same scriptures the law and prophets. And we have the same hope, which is the promised resurrection. Now, this is a wonderful and so helpful to the church defense that Paul makes of this second charge, the religious crime. In verses 14 and 15, Paul is confessing that though he is part of the way, which they call the sect of the Nazarenes, though he is part of the Christian movement, 
the greatest continuity with Judaism, he says, is to be found in the way, is to be found among the Christians. The resurrection hope is the central factor of that continuity, Paul says. Faithful Jews hoped in a resurrection of the just and the unjust. All faithful Jews had that same hope. They accepted the resurrection promise. Paul always wants to press the point of the resurrection because it allows him to declare to the Jews that that very hope that they all accepted, if they are faithful Jews, has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. They shouldn't be scandalized that the hope of resurrection has come upon them in the Messiah. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Faithful Jews should not be opposed to Jesus being the resurrection, unless, of course, they are not faithful to their own longstanding hope. And then there was the crime of desecration. Paul says to Felix, verse 18, you see this, they found me purified in the temple. On the very day they think I committed a crime, I'm I'm in the temple purified. Does that not prove my honor for the temple, is Paul's point? And then he says, by the way, it was some Jews from Asia who spread the lie that I took a man named Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple. Where are those Jews today? How come they're not down here in Caesarea? They ought to be here. So here Paul's pointing to this high ordinary standards of jurisprudence. Where are the witnesses for his so-called desecration of the temple? They're not present. Now, there's a big lesson to take from Paul's defense. It's a simple lesson, but it's enormous. All servants of Christ, all servants of Christ are to guard the sacredness of truth in the world. Christians do not massage nor manipulate facts because we want a certain outcome. The truth is sacred to us. We are not disciples of Tertullus. We are disciples of Jesus Christ who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. Truth is sacred because it is an attribute of the living God. Scripture says God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2. Beloved, speak the truth clearly. Speak the truth fully and leave yourself to the hands of God. And remember, Christian people who deal in untruth are handling the weapons of Satan's kingdom. Of Satan, Jesus said, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. Beloved, deal in truth, not in falsehood. Always, everywhere. Now, lastly, I want to look with you at Paul's presentation of the gospel to the elite power couple, Felix and Drusilla. Our text says in verse 24, 
that Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul was offering to Felix and Drusilla a full and free reconciliation to God. When Luke tells us that Paul spoke to them about faith in Christ Jesus, it is an expression to help us understand as a church that Paul was offering them eternal life through Jesus Christ. Eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And this would have been very strange to both Felix and Drusilla. They would have expected Paul maybe to say something about cleaning up their act. And Paul certainly spoke about self-control to them, we learn. He spoke about righteousness to them, we learn. But the overall banner to describe that conversation that Luke gives us is that he spoke to them about faith in Jesus Christ. To put their faith in Christ alone for the full pardon of their sins is what Paul was offering them. Here are two high-powered political and cultural elites who can have Paul executed to gain favor with the Jews, but instead of shrinking into silence, shrinking into fear, Paul offers them salvation by faith in Christ. Beloved, let me ask you, I have to ask you, you're in a hotel lobby, and there is the elite person that most makes your skin tingle with excitement. And they sit down with you for 10 minutes. What do you want to talk to them about? Please do not make this overly complicated. Talk to them about Jesus Christ. There's nothing about them that disqualifies them to hear about salvation of Jesus Christ. They are as much a sinner far from God as your neighbor, Ed, Offer them that which cannot be bought for money, that which cannot be awarded by power. Paul's heart is open toward these two. Paul's heart is hopeful for these two. Paul's heart has love for these two. The same love Jesus had for the rich young ruler who went away in unbelief. Does your heart get stingy and closed towards certain elites? You know the answer. If it does, I'm here to assure you this morning, whatever is making that heart closed and stingy is from the world that is passing away. It is from the old regime where men sized each other up on earthly terms and not the terms of the new creation which comes through Christ alone. Felix and Drusilla, Felix and Drusilla, 
are deeply flawed and sinful people in their personal lives and in their public lives. Adultery, murder, bribery, right here at the end of the text. They are people of scandal, people of ill repute in the region of Judea. Yet here's Paul offering them a full and a free reconciliation to God if they repent and put their faith in Christ. Wouldn't it be strange and terrible if a church of Jesus Christ or a collection of churches of Jesus Christ were not known for how eager they wanted to see people forgiven of their sins, but known for how ready they were to condemn people in their sins. So Paul does not flinch. He wields the sword of the word, which is the gospel. He wields it to glorify the life work of the crucified one. He wields the sword of the word to separate a man and a woman from their sins, if they will but believe. He wields the sword of the word to illuminate the fixed day on which the world will be judged by this one appointed man, whom God has proven it will be him by raising him from the dead. What comes forth from Paul is no uncertain sound with Felix and Drusilla. Paul does not succumb to that false pursuit of winsomeness that leaves out discussions about self-control, that leaves out discussions about righteousness. Paul is both winsome and piercing with these cultural elite. And it's because he does not need anything from them. He only wants to serve them and honor his king's name. He speaks of everything Felix and Drusilla need to hear if they are to be saved. But Felix, our text reveals, remains a coward. He is alarmed. Now, that's often a a good sign that the gospel has been properly preached, that law and gospel have both been offered. Felix is alarmed. But unfortunately, that's also the reaction to the gospel that those who do not believe have. They are not at peace. They are alarmed. And Felix slinks away to die another one of his thousand deaths, seeking bribes, verse 25, and playing favorites with the Jews, verse 26. He's an unconverted man. Paul, on the other hand, though still in prison, has done something that we all want to do even on the days we're not in prison. In prison, Paul has glorified and enjoyed Christ the Lord. What a life. A life worth living. His vindication, though unseen, will not be taken from him. Fear not, Christian. Fear not. Learn to reason about righteousness. Learn to reason about self-control. Learn to speak of the coming judgment. 
learn to speak of faith in Jesus Christ. And even if it alarms important men, as it did Felix, you will have served Jesus Christ. And that is the true measure of a quality life, that you have spoken of your king. You have spoken of his mediation. You have spoken of his holiness. And you have spoken of his day, which is coming upon the world. But even now, you have spoken of his saving mercies, that today is the day of his patience, and he is welcoming sinners into his refuge through his ambassadors. Beloved, hear this. The elite are not off limits to gospel ministry. Never smirk in your spirit. Never grow stingy and hard in your spirit when you hear of another church being planted in downtown Washington, D.C. Or when you hear of another missionary going to Madison. Never think it's a waste of time to bring the gospel to those you think rule over you. All men are found to be dead in their sins, not because of their relations to other men, but because of their relation to God Almighty. All men can be saved if it is God's pleasure. Let us pray. Father, we come before you then, having learned from your word and our apostle what the true measure of a quality life is, Even when we are having our worst day, our worst week, our worst two years, it is to honor our king, to speak of him, to invite sinners to his kingdom and under his wing and under his blood. Father, forgive us where we have succumbed to a reverse haughtiness and have thought high-born men don't deserve salvation. Even if we've never said it in those words, forgive us, Lord, if, you, if we know it's been in our heart. Forgive us for thinking so earthly-minded about the gospel. And Father, we pray. We pray that we ourselves would be kept from flattery, that we ourselves would be bound to the sacredness of truth and that we ourselves would be like our apostle and who was like his savior, our Lord Jesus, that we ourselves would be ambassadors calling all men to be reconciled to God, announcing that in Christ, the living God is no longer counting the trespasses of men against them, but he is counting those trespasses against the crucified one. Oh, Lord, help us preach and teach this. Help us be so saturated and controlled by it that it is indeed our instinct to offer it. In Jesus' name, amen.